In 2006, the CEO and president of Ford Motor Company was Bill Ford. And through humility, insights, and perseverance, he knew the man who could turn around the company that bore his family's name. But the person he wanted was an outsider who loved building planes instead. Could the all-American kid who grew up in Kansas turn around an ailing auto company? You know the rest of the story based on the best-selling book by Bryce Hoffman entitled American Icon. What was Mullally really like? Was he as humble as we see him in all of his interviews? And what's with BPRs or business process reviews? Our interview with Bryce Hoffman is coming up next, where we'll talk about his newest book as well, Red Teaming. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Bryce Hoffman is coming up next. American Icon is one of my favorite business books, and Alan Mulally has to be one of the greatest chief executives ever of any industry. And anytime I see him on an interview, I keep thinking that guy, he just seems so humble. But was he? Is that the real Alan Mulally we see in these conversations? That was my first question for Bryce Hoffman, the author of American Icon, who is also a friend of Mr. Mullally. So the answer, Mark, is yes, with a big caveat. And it's an important, it's an important caveat. Alan in person, in real life, is exactly as he comes across in the interviews. I have never encountered Alan Mullally being anyone or anything other than Maximum Alan. He is totally sincere. He's very humble. He's uh, just just a, a, a person you just love to be around. At the same time, that does not mean he does not have an ego. What it means is that Alan Mulally has done something that's very difficult for people to do. He's learned to step on his ego, to keep it in check because he recognized that doing so makes him a more effective leader, makes him a more successful leader, makes him a more powerful leader. And and it's something that I think is, is intentional and requires effort. And it's a very powerful thing that all of us can strive to do to become better leaders. Bryce, I love the book, American Icon. Incredible book. One of my all-time probably the top five, seven books I've ever read. How did that book come to be? You didn't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to start writing about it. How did it get started? Great question, Mark. Well, I am a former journalist. I call myself a recovering journalist. I was a newspaper man for 22 years, started covering the the high-tech industry in California, and then moved to Detroit to cover the collapse and, and revival of the American automobile industry. And I was hired in 2005 uh, by the Detroit News. And, and the editor who hired me gave me a choice. He said, do you want to cover General Motors or do you want to cover Ford? And I said, I don't know. You know I, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. What do, you, what do you think? He said, well, General Motors is bigger, but Ford leaks like a sieve. And I said, well, I'll cover Ford. And so that was my entire job. Because the auto industry is so central to Michigan that the, the that that there was one reporter at each paper assigned to 
each of the major automakers, to each company. And so I spent literally every day covering Ford Motor Company from about a year, year and a half before Alan Mulally came on until until I left journalism at the end of 2013. And so I had a, a front row seat for all of the events that I talk about in American Icon. And I knew as soon as I started covering Ford Motor Company that I was witnessing a great American story. I didn't know how it was going to end at that time. I didn't know if I was witnessing the collapse of an American icon or its resurrection and salvation. But either way, I knew that this was an important story to chronicle, that there would be important lessons for businesses in all industries. And so from day one, in addition to writing articles for the newspaper every day, I kept copious notes. I kept copious recordings of everything that was going on with the intention that when it was clear how this story was going to end, that I would be able to tell it fully in book format. And then after Alan came on and I became good friends with Alan, you know, I I was able to add so much more to that. But even having all of that research, Mark, when I finally said at uh, the beginning of 2010, which was when Ford was posting quarter after quarter of record profits and completely saved itself without taking a bailout as the rest of the American automobile as the rest of the American automobile industry collapsed around it that's when i started writing the book took a year off from the news to to write the book i still spent a year sitting with alan sitting with all the other ford executives sitting with everybody who had a role to play in this amazing story and finding out the real story, the things that hadn't been reported, the things that couldn't be talked about while they were happening. And that's the story that I was able to tell in American Icon. What I'm finding already interesting, just a few minutes we've been talking, you're a former journalist, you're a writer. Did you know you're quotable? <laughs> you are so cool. <laughs> um, this, is, Thank you. this is so good. Hey, before we get into the book, I just want to real quickly, now you've got a very cool, you've got this cool website of a, of a practice, consulting practice you're, you're running. I'll let you say Unconsulting, what, unconsulting. Unconsulting. I picked, by the way, that's, yeah. that you say that in on LinkedIn as well, that you're an unconsultant. I absolutely love yeah. it. That's very plagiarizable, uh, by the way. <laughs> thank so, you. Thank so, you. Well, you know, it's the reason is, is because I'd rather teach people how to fish than sell them some fish. So it's called Red Team Thinking. Is that the name of the practice? Correct. Red Team Thinking is our company, redteamthinking.com. And we're going to put a pin in that and we'll come back to that. Again, I just think it's fantastic. So let's turn our attention back to the book, American Icon. Again, I'm calling it probably one of the best leadership books. You're smiling, but it's not a leadership book, but yet push back on me. Am I right or wrong? Great leadership book. I, I'm not going to push back at you at all. I, I, I mean, I, and it's not me. It's the, it's the story that I was able to tell about Alan, who offers, I think, one of the most compelling models for leadership that we've seen in, in decades in this country. And it's, it's a new model of leadership, Mark. It's the, it's the model of the leader as a coach, not a king. And, and the job of the coach is not to win the game. The job of the coach 
is to empower the team to work together as a team to win the game. And that is the model of leadership that Alan Mulally used to save Boeing and then to save Ford Motor Company. And it is a powerful model. It's a compelling model. And it's a model that I think, and I hope that that many other leaders study and learn from. This is not in my notes, but can we give a quick shout out? Speaking of leadership, Bill Ford exhibited some leadership because in the book, he didn't just pick up the phone and say, hey, can come work for us? Because Alan at first said, well, maybe, yeah, no. But then he, he hung in there and Bill met with some resistance. So do you agree that Bill exhibited some some leadership as well? Absolutely. I mean, you think about this is an unprecedented thing in American business. Bill Ford, chairman of Ford Motor Company, at the time CEO of Ford Motor Company too, ex- acting as executive chairman, the man whose name is literally on the side of the building, to have the humility to step aside and to turn his company over to someone else to say, I can't do this by myself. I need help. Will you help me save this iconic company, this storied company that my my great-grandfather founded, that my family has devoted its, its, itself to generation after generation? Will you help me save this company? I mean, that is that is a tough thing to do in any environment, and it's doubly tough in the kind of cutthroat world of the American automobile industry. I cannot even put myself in your shoes, someone hearing accolades about someone else's work. So uh, again, I apologize if I'm laying it on you, but your book was so good. It led me to reading other books. I ended up reading The Whiz Kids shortly after American Icon. I read Freedom's Forge, which is if you love business history, that should be on everyone's uh, bookshelf. I read a Charlie Sorensen book. I read two books, one by four, the one, his autobiography uh, book about him. I just want to say that's how good, you know, you've written a good book when it leads me going down a deeper path. And to me, that's great writing. It's not really well, a thank question. You. And it, again, it's a great story. It's, it's an easy story to write because Ford is, I think, the most iconic American company. I mean, Henry Ford, in addition to being the person who put the world on wheels, created the American century, the 20th century, more than any other individual. He created the modern world. He created the moving assembly line. He created the integrated manufacturing complex. All of these things, he created this this model of, of an industrial middle class that people who built things should be able to afford those things. So many things that are the hallmark of America or at least were the hallmark of America in the 20th century, were started by Ford, were created by Ford. And people forget this now, but he was also the Steve Jobs of his era. Just like people stood in line, stand in line for the latest iPhone, for the latest iPod, for the latest uh, thing from Apple, that's how people reacted to Ford 100 years ago when the Model A was launched in the 1920s. Millions of Americans waited in line for hours to see, in most cases, not even the car because there were so few of them that only a handful of dealers actually had a car, but a cardboard cutout of the car. That's how much people were were enthralled with this 
this Ford company, this Ford person, this Ford enterprise, and this new model um, that was being created by this company and by this person. He didn't really say, did he? You can have anything you want as long as it's painted black. He did not say that. Unfortunately not. That is interesting. I think you need to do some type of a long blog post of what Ford did not say. But 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 back to Mr. Mullally. In our interview arc, I use the word secret, and that's really not a good word to use. What would you say were the set of tools that made Alan successful? Well, one of them we already talked about, which was his ability to to check his own ego and to and to create a a team, a leadership team rather than just being a leader. That's number one. Number two, the man is incredibly charismatic, and you cannot underestimate the importance of that when you're trying to rally people to do some very heavy lifting at both Boeing and Ford. In both cases, these were companies that were facing existential crises. And so having that inspirational leader, that charismatic leader was essential. The most powerful thing, though, his business plan review process. This, the BPR process, which I describe in my book, is so powerful, is so compelling. And it's 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 a elegantly simple system. It's an engineer's response because he was an aeronautical engineer by right. training. It's an engineer's response to how you run an organization. And by organization, I mean a multinational corporation, or he even used this system to run, I kid you not, the tennis team at Boeing. And so- the BPR process, it's, it's, it's about reducing things to facts and data to get through the politics, the personality, to have this data-driven approach to leadership that is all about focusing on what are the problems that we're dealing with right now, who can help solve those problems, and moving on, not getting bogged down in all of these, these things that distract organizations from moving forward. And I'll tell you, this is how Alan and I became friends, was I heard about this BPR process a few weeks after he started at Ford. I started hearing from people about this this new type of meeting. And I got it. I understood it because I hate meetings. Did you I get hated to, editorial meetings. Did you yep. get to go to one? I'm sorry to interrupt. Did you get to attend one? No, I never got to go to one because it was confidential. But he, I did sit with him and have, me, have him walk me through practice ones. Um, but, uh, the, the, when I heard about this, I wrote this story describing this amazing new process, how every Thursday morning for two hours, all of the senior leaders of Ford gathered on the top of the top floor of Ford's world headquarters in the Thunderbird room. And they, in the space of two hours, went through all of the aspects of the company's global operations that they did it at lightning speed. They identified problems, they found solutions, and then they moved on. And I wrote a piece for the Detroit News about this, and Alan loved it because it was it, it was he, he called me the day it was published and said, "You see what I'm trying to do here. You get it. I really appreciate that." That piece got mocked by so many other uh, of the established auto reporters. There was, I, I, I don't remember if it was Fortune or Forbes. I think it was Fortune Magazine had a huge story called Ford's Big Idea, A Better Meeting. 
in a very mocking, you know, tone. And, but, but it was a big idea because before Alan came on as CEO, Mark, Ford had not had a company-wide overview with its senior executives sitting in the same room together for years because they hated each other so much. They fought so much. And I mean, by fought, I mean, literally at points, you know, you know, almost, you know, having to be physically separated, literally by Bill Ford, two executives having to be pulled apart. They couldn't sit at the same table. And so it was a big idea to have this meeting where everybody just calmly sat, looked at PowerPoint slides saying, oh, here's what's working. Here's what's not working. How do we fix what's not working? As a team, working together, it's a powerful thing. So that working together model is the fourth thing he brought. This, and it's a mindset. It's an idea that the best solutions are the ones that make everybody win. And I mean, we use the term win-win solutions all the time, right? But we don't really think about it. This is a very serious, thoughtful approach to creating win-win solutions. Let me give you an example of one. When Allen came on, Ford Motor Company was rated the worst automaker in the world to do business with by auto suppliers. There's an annual survey of suppliers and Ford finished dead last. Allen worked with Ford's purchasing department to turn that around in the space of two years. How did they do it? They went and they told their suppliers, look, we hear you. We recognize that you've been treated badly by this company. We've pitted suppliers against each other. We've nickeled and dimed you to death. We haven't given you any long-term commitments. And as a result, you don't like us. You put your worst engineers on our projects and it's not working for anyone. So here's what we're going to do. Not here's what we expect you to do. Here's what we're going to do. We are going to eliminate about half of you. But those that we keep, we are going to commit to you. We're going to work with you long-term. We're going to sign long-term agreements with you. We're going to stop pitting you against each other in this kind of cage match to, to shave pennies off of the price of parts. And this is going to make you more successful. And we believe it will make us more successful working together more effectively with you. Within a couple of years, Ford was the highest rated American manufacturer in terms of prefer suppliers prefer to do business with. He did the same thing with Ford's dealers. He did the same thing with all these other constituencies, even the United Auto Workers Union, which nobody thought could be brought to the table to renegotiate the contract. Because again, he didn't come to them saying, hey, you better do what we're telling you or or, or we're going to outsource all of our production. He said to them, right now, we have no choice but to outsource all of our production because we can't make money building cars in the United States under the current contract. But if you will work with us, we will insource production. We'll take cars that we are building in Mexico today and we'll bring them back to Michigan and build them in Michigan. And that's exactly what he did. So it was creating real win-win solutions that made people, made all of the stakeholders invested in Ford's success. Those four things, those are the secret. Bryce, well, one of the things he'll be remembered for is telling Washington, D.C., I do not need your money. I mean, that's that's classic. Oh, it's 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 one of the most heroic decisions in business history, I believe. I mean, you think about this. At the time, and I've seen the balance sheets, at the time, Ford had done its internal analysis. This is the end of 2008. Ford had done its analysis, and it 
it could see that in the midst of the Great Recession, it could see that there was enough money in the bank to stay in business for six months at the current at, at the current state of the economy. In other words, in six months, in July of the following year, by July of the following year, they would be out of business completely. Not like cutting back. I mean, turn the lights off and go home. And despite that, and at the same time, Uncle Sam had his checkbook open. And all he wanted to know from Ford, the only question he had asked Alan Mulally was how many zeros do you want on this check? Just tell us, tell us once, because we don't want you to come back a second time. How many hundreds of millions, billions of dollars do you need to save this company? And Alan had the courage to say, you know what? This is not right. We created these problems ourselves. We need to show the American people that we are not just like GM and Chrysler. Dinosaurs stumbling towards extinction at that time. That we get it, that we created these problems, but we are going to own them. We're going to fix them ourselves. And the best way that we can communicate that to the people of the United States and the people around the world is to tell Uncle Sam, thank you, but we've got this ourselves. We created these problems. We'll solve them ourselves. And so he convinced his leadership team that the best way forward was to pass on a government bailout and to fix Ford's problems itself. And we all know what happened. General Motors and Chrysler went bankrupt, and Ford saved itself. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. I'm not paid to say this, but I'm not embarrassed to say I'm already on F-150 number two, and and I, I am very proud of that. So And now they're just launching the electric F-150. Exactly. I, that's, I'm not ready for that yet. So I, <laughs> I love the horsepower, the, the, the two that I've had, that I've had and have currently. Hey, real quickly, uh, is there another American icon in you, Bryce? No, I don't think so. I've been asked to, to write books about several other companies. And, you know, as much as I enjoyed telling uh, the Ford story and sharing Alan's model of leadership, what I learned from this process, because this book changed me too. I wrote this book just because I thought it was a good story and that I thought it was an important lesson that other leaders and other companies could learn from. As a result of this book, though, when the book was published in, in, in spring of 2012, I started getting calls almost immediately from CEOs and other business leaders saying, hey, read this book, love these, this. Can you come talk to our leadership team about the ideas in this book? And so I started going and giving talks to people about this. Then I started getting calls from some of those same companies saying, hey, loved your talk about this. Can you help us implement some of the ideas in this book? And what I learned, Mark, is that 
helping companies solve their problems is a lot more fun and a lot more edifying way to spend your time than writing about their problems. So I, I quit my job as a reporter and I, I, I started working with companies uh, initially as a consultant, but then I, I, I had this idea that, that it's better to teach people how to do things rather than give them the solutions. And that, that led to my, to my current work. And so I do hope to write more books. My, I've written since then, I've written other books, uh, written red teaming, uh, which, which talks about, uh, you know, the, these, this applied critical thinking group think mitigation tools that, uh, I spend most of my time teaching organizations about now, but I don't, I don't have any desire to go back and, and report a book and, and write another reported book at this time. And I asked that question on purpose because I do want to talk about red teaming. Now, this is opinion. I can almost see red teaming being the book that, that a, a new consultant at McKinsey or BCG or Accenture, hey, let's read this. That book, and you said, Mark, can, can you read this book going into this interview? I thought, sure. Well, I'm glad you did because I found the book incredibly addicting. How did this book come about? Again, great book. Thank you. Well, it actually came about because of, of the Ford story. So as I said, you know, end of 2013, I, I decided that I was going to to, to leave journalism and, and, and work with helping companies to, to manage better, lead better, and, and think more strategically. And as I was leaving, I had one final interview with Bill Ford. And I told Bill, you know, I said at that time, Ford's stock price was, was totally back. Dividends were back. Company had been posting quarter after quarter record profits. All the polls were in. The, Ford was the most admired American automaker and the most admired American manufacturer. And I said to Bill, I said, you know, you must be sleeping a lot better these days than you were uh, a few years ago. And he said to me, you know, I wish, but now what I'm worried about is that we're going to get complacent and that we're going to slip back into our old bad behaviors and that we're going to stop doing the things that Alan taught us how to do that, that, that save the company. And that really struck me because it's an important question. And I started thinking about all of the different companies that had become victims of their own success. And parenthetically, Bill's concerns were well-placed. If you look at where Ford's at today, unfortunately, his concerns were well-placed. But it got me thinking there must be a way for organizations to, to keep asking themselves the tough questions, to keep their foot on the gra- gas, to keep innovating, to keep challenging their own thinking, to not get complacent, to not fall victim to groupthink, to not become victims of their own success. And, and to become one of the disruptors rather than the disrupted in their, in their industries. And so that search led me to this, this concept called red teaming that was developed by the military and intelligence community after 9-11 because they realized that what led to the intelligence failures that led to 9-11 was caused by the success of the CIA and other intelligence agencies up to that point. They had become complacent. They had stopped challenging their own thinking. They thought they had cracked the code and that they didn't need to keep asking the tough questions. The U.S. Army then initially thought, great, you know, won the war in Iraq 
in Afghanistan. And then suddenly we weren't winning anymore. And so they started looking and said, wow, we made a lot of really bad assumptions. How do we not do this again? And so these two organizations came up with this set of tools and techniques to help organizations challenge their own thinking, challenge their own assumptions, to overcome groupthink, and to make better decisions. And when I heard about that, I called up the Pentagon and I said, hey, I've heard about this concept called Red Team. I understand you have this training school for senior army officers. I'd like to audit the course. And the Pentagon said, who the hell do you think you are? And I said, I'm a best-selling business author. And I wrote said, American yes. Icon. Said, who the hell do you think you are? And I, well, who, who I am, Mark, is very persistent. And so I kept calling, I kept emailing, I kept knocking on doors. And after about six months, I finally persuaded the army to let me go to beautiful Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, not too far from you. Uh, and, uh, and I spent the first half of 2015 there learning these tools, learning these techniques. And then I worked with the, the British military and, and others that use these tools and techniques to, to learn even more about them, the U.S. Marines. And then in 2017, I wrote Red Teaming and launched this new unconsulting practice to teach individuals and organizations how to think more critically, how to challenge your assumptions, how to navigate the complexity of the world we live in today and how to make better decisions faster in that world. We could spend weeks talking about this book. So I just picked two items out of the book and I hope that's okay. But absolutely. The, but the, the Kinevin, did I say that correctly? You did. The, well, I didn't two weeks ago, I didn't say it correctly, but the Kinevin matrix is bent my mind because I have all of these frameworks that I create and I've learned that, Mark, these frameworks only solve simple problems. And you probably can't use them for complicated problems, let alone complex problems and obviously chaotic. But that matrix is, to me, one of the best discussion points in the book. Agree or disagree? Again, there's some tremendous tools in there. Absolutely. I mean, the Kinevin framework was developed by Dave Snowden. Um, he's Welsh, and that's it's a Welsh term. And he calls it a sense-making framework. He developed it when he worked at IBM. And, and its point, the real point of the Kinevin framework is to understand the sort of problem that you're dealing with so you can understand how to address the problem effectively. And this is a really important point, Mark, because human beings, we are, we are problem-solving creatures. When we're given a problem, we rush to solve it before we even understand what the problem is. So think about it. If I was, you know, if I was to sit in front of a, a, of your listeners here and start writing a simple math equation on the chalkboard, most people would start solving that math equation before I even finished writing it. That's just the way our brains are wired. And there's a good reason for that, right? Because on the African savanna, you don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about whether the lion is hungry or just wants to be your friend. You want to make a quick decision. Right and act. So there's good reason for it. But the problem is, is that when we're dealing with much more complex or complicated problems than, than whether the lion is hungry or wants to be our friend, we need to think more deeply. So Snowden created this, this Kinevin framework to help us understand what sort of problem we're dealing with. Is it a chaotic problem? So an example of a chaotic problem is a fire. If your house is on fire, you don't really need to know what caused the fire. You, you don't need to know how to prevent the fire from happening again. You need to get the heck out of the house as quickly as you can. 
You don't even know need to know how to put the fire out at this point. You just need to act. You need to get out of the chaotic. And once you get out of chaotic, you end up in one of the other three quad- quadrants. So then, and those quadrants are simple, complicated, and complex. So simple problems are the domain of best practices. There's a there's a clear way to do it. You can look at the manual. You can you know you can put the fire out by following standard operating procedures. You don't have to figure it out each time. If you don't know the answer, somebody else does. And all you need to do is either look it up or get them to do it for you. So if I, you know, I'll give you an example. A simple problem is landing a plane. Every pilot has a checklist. You know what you need to do to land the plane. People have done it millions of times. All you have to do is do the same thing they did. Do it in the right way, in the right order. Plane will land safely. You only run into problems when you deviate from that or when something unexpected happens and you're no longer just landing the plane, you're dealing with a crisis. So that's a, that's a simple problem. Complicated problems. Complicated problems may be very hard to solve, but there is a solution. And, and how you find that solution is well understood. You may have to assemble a team of experts to find the solution, but the path is clear. So, you know, if I if I have some illness in me that my doctor doesn't know what it is, that may be a very tough problem, but the way to find it out is well understood. It may take months. It may take a whole array of specialists, but the, but the, but the, the way to deal with the problem is understood. So this is the area where you get into experts using their expertise to solve problems. But then there's another quadrant and that's complex problems. And complex problems are the sort of problems that we are increasingly dealing with today. So the best example right now of a complex problem is the present pandemic. The the present pandemic, solving the problem creates more problems. You know, locking down the economy to keep people safe creates a whole array of other problems. Right. And, and And those problems then create other problems on top of that. And you get this whole cascade of problems. Those are complex problems. And in those cases, there isn't a clear solution. There isn't an easy answer. And even if you find the answer in the moment, it's not the answer for the rest of your life. It changes. So you have to continually test what, what Snowden says in the arena of complex problems. You have to probe, sense, and react. You have to try something, see if it works and say, okay, this works, but it worked now. So now I have to keep seeing if it's going to continue to work. And uh, the best way to think of complex complex problems is one of one of uh, the people I had the pleasure to work with on 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 the red teaming book, uh, General Paul Van Riper, a legend in the U.S. Marine Corps. He describes complex problems are like playing a game of chess in which every piece is connected to every other piece with a rubber band. So that as soon as you move one pawn on the chessboard, every other piece on the chessboard ends up in a different Good square. one. Very good one. One of my favorite books, and I would call it in the I would call it part of the CFO bookshelf top one hundred, is a book by Gordon Sullivan, uh, Hope is Not a Method. And it's the first time I'd read about the after action reviews. What I liked about your book, and this would be the last uh tool that we we mentioned is for some reason I cannot get pre-mortems out of my head. And I want to thank you because my biggest takeaway of pre-mortems, as you describe them in your red teaming book, is we're going to assume 
this project fails. Now, what can we do to keep it from happening? And I'm thinking, why doesn't everyone do that on any uh, project, even somewhat simple ones? But the pre-mortems, I'm just saying, absolutely brilliant. Well, thank you. It's one of my favorite tools as well. It was developed by Dr. Gary Klein, someone I've had the privilege of working closely with since both on the book. And since then, we've been co-teaching classes on it. And and the point is exactly as you described, Mark, is, is what Gary realized, and he's one of the top cognitive scientists in the world today, is that when people make a decision or they come up with a plan, they come up with a strategy, they very quickly start thinking about how what success is going to look like. You know, what is it, what's it going to look like when this plan succeeds? If we do X, Y, and Z, what's that going to do for us? And they and, and the more they think about it, the the more obsessed, the more focused they get on what success looks like. Very few people spend any time thinking about what does failure look like uh, until it happens. And so that's why he had this idea of taking the concept of a postmortem, which we all know, which is where you know the patient dies, and then you you do a postmortem to figure out why they died, so you can avoid other people succumbing in the same way in the future. He said, you know. That works out well for everybody but the patient. So let's turn this on its head and let's ask this question up front before we execute the plan. Let's say if this, let's imagine that it's two years from now and this plan has failed. It hasn't just failed a little bit. It's failed catastrophically. Let's look in our crystal ball and see what that failure looks like. But more importantly, let's see what the steps are that led that failure to happen in the first place. Because then we can modify the plan right now before we execute it to to decrease the likelihood of those things occurring. Or if we can't decrease the likelihood of those things occurring, what we can do is come up with mitigating actions right now, contingency plans, if you will, that we're going to have in our hip pocket. So that if things start going awry in the future, we won't have to panic. Our hair won't catch fire. We'll say, right, remember when we did a pre-mortem on that? What what did we think the right thing to do was? Let's do that now. So it's a very powerful tool. And these are are both great tools. And they're just, just two amongst dozens of tools in the Red Team Thinking Toolkit. I was going to say, we haven't even even scratched the surface at all. I can just say, read the book every day business leader, financial leader, I don't care. Read the book, get the book. We need, we do need to wrap up, man. Time has been going fast, Bryce. Uh, real quickly, uh, I think this is trademarked. I think I, I think this is correct. Don't outsource thinking. You came up with yes. that in your, I, that is, I love it. I mean, that that's really, our motto. that's a core value, isn't it? Well, it is. And that's why I don't like the term consultant and came up with the term unconsultant because I don't want people to, to, to abdicate the role of being a thinker. I want people to think for themselves. When I go into a company, Mark, I don't know what the company needs to do to save itself or to fix its problems. What I know is that I have a set of tools and techniques that they can use to figure out that for themselves because they're the ones who have the answers. They know their business better than anyone. And, and nine times out of 10, there's somebody in the organization who knows exactly what needs to be done. This is something I learned from Alan. You know, I'll I'll never forget my very first sit-down interview with Alan, six weeks after he started Ford Motor Company. He came to the Detroit News 
we sat at a big conference table, myself and the senior editors. And we asked, first question we asked him is, why haven't you fired anyone yet? When are you going to start firing people? And he looked at us, he said, what do you mean? We said, you got a company that's full of these jokers who were running into the ground. Why are you not firing them, bringing in your A-team from Seattle, from Boeing? And he looked at us like we just said the stupidest thing in the world. He said, why would I do that? The people at Boeing don't know how to save Ford Motor Company. The people at Ford know how to save Ford Motor Company. My job as the leader is to find those people at Ford who know what needs to be done and clear a path for them to do it. So in this capacity, the leader becomes an icebreaker whose job it is to clear a way through the ice that's holding back progress, that's keeping the organization from doing the things that people in the organization already know need to be done. And so similarly, that's what these tools and techniques are designed to do is, and it's why I say don't outsource thinking is don't call us and say, Hey, what do we, how can we save our company? I get calls like that all the time. And I, my response is, I don't know how to save your company. You know how to save your company. Let me help you find the answers that you have already, or that your team has, because I guarantee you they're there. I guarantee it. Last question. I love reading. I think you're a reader as well. So we ask every guest this question. What are some of your favorite books? By far, the book that I recommend the most, The Logic of Failure by Dietrich Dorner. It is a book that I wish every leader in the world could read. I'd never heard of that book. I will tell you, Mark, when I was at Fort Leavenworth going through the U.S. Army's Red Team Leader course, we had dozens of books we had to read during that course. We were averaging 150, 200 pages a night of reading for months. And at the end of the class, our instructor took a poll to see which was our class's favorite book. And every single person in the class voted for The Logic of Failure by Dietrich Dorner. It, 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 will, it will enlighten you so much as to the difference between good decision makers and bad decision makers and what leads to good decisions and what leads to bad decisions. I'm going to move everything aside and I'm going to start this tonight. We'll see if there's a Kindle version or I'll buy the book. There is. Excellent. Let me know what you think of it too. I cannot wait. Give me about a week and I will send you my notes. Any, any, anything else, any other books off the top of your head? There's so many. I mean, I, I am an avid reader and I learn something from every book that I read. If I, don't, if I don't feel like I'm learning something from a book, I just stop reading it very quickly because there's so many good books to read. I will tell you one that I think uh, is important because it's an older book that I think newer leaders probably haven't heard of, but I still find uh, to be incredibly powerful is Peter Senge's The Fifth Discipline. I love it. And his his he also has a, a workbook. There, there's a... Yes. I, I would also recommend anyone who's gotten that book also get that workbook, that that flimsy workbook, because he had he had yeah. some things in it, kind of in a not a haphazard way, but uh, there's some really good material in that. But no, that's a great call. He poses. He, one, one, I'm going to paraphrase because I can't recall his exact quote, but it's one of the most powerful quotes that I know of, and I cite it all the time. He writes in the fifth discipline. It is far from clear. It is far from clear what has done more damage in history, evil actions with intelligence or good intent 
with a lack of intelligence. Hey, before we go, Bryce, where can we find you? Very easy. I am at redteamthinking.com is my company, all one word, redteamthinking.com, or you can go to brycehoffman.com. And I am also uh, launching a new podcast called The Thinking Leader, which you can find on iTunes, on uh, Spotify, on Google Podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Count me as a new listener. Preface, what's the show about? Sure. In, in each episode, Mark, I sit with different leader. Uh, my first guest, as a matter of fact, is with Al, is Alan Mulally. And you're going to love this. My second guest, uh, episode two, is Dr. Gary Klein, creator of premortem analysis. Everything we've been talking about. Wait, wait for it. Episode number four is Dave Snowden, creator of the Kinevin framework. It's all your favorites. If you need an assistant, if you need a volunteer, <laughs> I'm here for you, brother. I'm here for you. Um, the only person you're missing is uh, Mr. Lewis, James P. Lewis. And he is actually... I would love to talk to you. He James has Lewis. accepted an invitation, but uh, somehow he kind of fell off the radar. I hope nothing's uh, wrong with him. But I have his book. In fact, I just happen to have it ironically, right here, working together. Working together. And, and I've read yeah. this thing several times. And I was curious if we'd had time, had you met him or come across that book. It's, it is oh, I interviewed great... him for my book. Absolutely. And, that's, and I may have forgotten about that. Bryce, again, this, this has been fantastic. And this is almost like a dream come true. I feel like that little kid going to see his favorite Major League Baseball player in Bush Stadium and <laughs> And uh, this has just been phenomenal. I, I cannot thank you enough. Well, thank you. I have really enjoyed speaking with you, Mark. Great conversation. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Wow. Great discussion, Bryce Hoffman. If he says yes, I think we'll have him back to dig deeper into red team thinking. So you already know about American Icon. Again, his second book is Red Teaming, How Your Business Can Conquer the Competition by Challenging Everything. The book is addicting, and when you start reading it, take your time. Don't rush it. I also think it's a great book to read with a small group of people and then talk about it every week for a month or so. And again, don't forget Bryce's new podcast, The Thinking Leader. Again, The Thinking Leader. You can find it wherever you listen to your shows, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And his first interview is with Alan Mulally. The title is Leadership in Times of Crisis. Bryce Hoffman, you are awesome. And all the best with your new firm, Red Team Thinking. Next week, we have one of my consulting heroes on, Chuck Kunrat. He's been called the grandfather of gamification. His book is The Game of Work. That's next week on CFO Bookshelf. I'm Mark Gandy. Until next time.